Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Robin Sloan is here for his newest novel, Sourdough. He's the author of New York Times bestseller, Mr. Penumbra's 24-Hour Bookstore. He grew up in Michigan and now splits his time between the Bay Area and the Internet. And uh, Sourdough, which, uh, according to Cory Doctorow, uh, plunges through so much terrain, micro microbial, thank you, nations, assimilation and tradition, embodied consciousness, and the crisis of the tech industry, all without losing the light, sweet, ironic, Salonian voice, familiar from Mr. Penumbra's, a plot that makes the book a page-turner and laugh out louder, with sweetness with sweetness and romance and tartness and irony and perfect balance. What a great book, seriously. Here he is. Thanks. Thanks for that warm... Thank you for that warm introduction. I'm so happy to be back at Skylight Books. I came here on the tour for Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore. It was my first visit to this beautiful bookstore. I think it's truly one of those sort of perfectly sized bookstores of the world with the high ceilings and the shelves all around you. And you can't quite get lost, which I think is probably a good thing. Um, I want to do a few things. Here is what I propose to you. I would like to tell you a couple stories, just a couple, about this book. One about where it came from, and another about kind of where it ended up, without any spoilers, I promise. I want to share a couple strange sounds, actually some songs with you. Uh, I want to take some time to answer your questions, of course, so you should start thinking about those now. There will come a moment when I say, does anyone have any questions? And rather than sort of an awkward, empty void, someone could be like, yes, I have a question. And then I want to sign your books. So does that sound like a good plan? Okay. Many nods of approval. So let me begin. Um, where this book began, before it was even a book, with the suitcase clone. I was in wine country up north of San Francisco. Actually, like many wine countries north of San Francisco, there's Napa, and then if you're like kind of too cool for Napa, there's Sonoma, and if you're kind of too cool for Sonoma, it keeps going. And up in Mendocino County, there's this little town, and in that little town, there's a little winery, and I was there with my partner, Catherine, years ago now. Just We had like rolled up, not knowing anything about it, and we asked for a tasting. So this very nice person was pouring us wines, and at one point, she set out those big, like the biggest gobletiest wine glasses, and she started pouring a real dark, almost inky red wine. And as she was doing it, she leaned forward, and her voice was full of conspiracy when she said, you know... This one is a suitcase clone. Has anyone ever even heard that phrase before, suitcase clone? Okay, so I had not. Every, every so often, there'll be like one hand. They're like, yes, I know the secret of the suitcase clone. I definitely had never heard those two words combined before. I really liked the way that they sounded. And so uh, I'm never without a notebook of some kind um, to record things exactly like that. Phrases, names, uh, you know, bits of overheard conversation, anything that just seems like it kind of glows with that possibility that it could be, become something interesting, maybe part of a book someday. So I'm always jotting them down, 
always ready to record them. So I whipped up my notebook. I think I actually like startled the woman in the tasting room a little bit. I was like, what was that again? Suitcase clone, okay. And then I asked her to explain what that meant because I had no idea. So here's what she told me. In the California wine industry, many years ago, decades ago, when it was first starting to sort of take itself seriously as a peer in terms of quality with uh, the great wineries of the old world, France and Italy, there was a thing that people did. And this is all true, by the way. This is like totally the real deal. Uh, let's say it's me, and I'm up there, you know, in Napa or even further north, and I want to set up a vineyard, and I want it to be really, really fantastic. I've got the land, but I don't have the grapes yet. And so maybe I would find one of you. I'd be like, hello, friend. We met at Skylight Books, remember? Uh, how would you like to take a vacation to France? How would you like to go to one of the grand old winemaking regions? Bordeaux, say. Go, have a good time, spend a week, stay a little B&B. And maybe on the last day of your vacation, you could find yourself wandering down a little path, the country road, you know, in the evening, the sun's going down, long shadows. And maybe that road could happen to abut one of these grand old vineyards and maybe walking down that path you could suddenly notice that like your shoelace is untied and you could duck down and from some secret pocket uh, produce like a little pair of scissors or who knows maybe you could use like nail clippers or something we're not going to be too too fancy about this what matters is that snip snip you get a couple cuttings from these grapes, these amazing grapes that have been cultivated there for hundreds of years and produced such great wine. With those cuttings, you're going to book it back to your B&B, &B, wrap them in wet towels to kind of keep them alive, stick them at the bottom of your luggage, pile up your, all your other stuff on top, you know, your underwear and everything else, make haste back to California, do not declare those at customs, Instead, bring them straight to me in my soon-to-be vineyard where I will graft those cuttings onto American rootstock. Then, as the grapes grow, I will cut and graft, cut and graft, propagating them until I have an entire vineyard composed of the same grapes as whatever fancy vineyard I sent you to. So this is totally a real thing. Um, Fundamentally, just for the record, it's pretty silly because, of course, it's not the same grape. Uh, it's different in a different environment, different weather. You make the wine differently. I mean, everything is different. It's not the same. But, indisputably, one thing you get from that whole sort of complicated process is the ability, decades hence, to tell unsuspecting tasters in your tasting room, you know, this one is a suitcase clone. So, okay, that's the story she told us. Um, I thought it was completely awesome. I don't know if you have the same reaction. I was like, that's amazing! Because it's like something that's so familiar and just every day and, and delightful. You know, wine. We feel like that's kind of part of our lives and we understand it and we like it. And it's mixed with this secret history and, you know, just the vision of someone sort of smuggling something across borders, this sort of spy stuff. So I thought it was really cool. It sent me searching for more stories like that, um, and I found tons of them. Like, they are not in short supply. In fact, I would hazard a guess to say that the story of food and eating 
is more that than anything else. It's things getting smuggled across borders. It's um, you know things that seem food, you know, different kinds of ingredients, different plants that seem natural. Like, of course, what's what's more American than apple pie? It's like no, neither apples nor pie are American. <laughs> In fact, you know, and there's whole books written about this stuff. So. Um, so I got obsessed with those stories, and I just found them so compelling and so interesting, the way they cracked open this familiar world and showed the sort of secret heart within. And that's one of the things you're going to find on the pages of Sourdough in a lot of different ways. I hope some of them are kind of subtle, just little grace notes where I explain some of these weird facts I learned. And of course, some of them are perhaps a little more direct. And just to give you a little bit of that flavor and to kind of show you where that took me, where that moment of the suitcase clone took me, I want to read just a tiny, tiny piece. Um, and this is from later on in the book. The protagonist has found herself part of a secret underground farmer's market, a sort of farmer's market, and is populated by all these interesting characters doing very strange things. One of them is a microbiologist, and she's just explained the way that she's sort of splicing the genome of these microbes in order to make this amazing, interesting, daring new kind of food, a new kind of nutrition. One of the other denizens of the market, one of her peers who's a bit more organic, has sort of retorted, I am not on board for that. No, you can't do that here. That's not natural. To which the microbiologist has replied, very matter-of-factly, what? Nothing is natural. So this is a little conversation that two other characters have immediately following that interaction. After the sequencing session was over, I walked with Horace through the grove at the heart of the market. These are Meyer lemons, Horace said as we passed the trees. They're named for Frank Nicholas Meyer. He was Dutch by birth, but an agent of the United States government. He worked for the Department of Agriculture's Office of Seed and Plant Introduction before the First World War. And I thought of him when Dr. Jaina Mitra spoke of her microbial survey. Meyer and his cohort were hunters for larger prey. They canvassed the world and sent back living samples of plants thought to be useful to the advancement of the American economy. Meyer worked in China. He sent the first soybean to America. And persimmons, any persimmon grown in this country today comes from that lineage. And of course, there are these lemons named for him. Meyer died in China. He drowned in the Yangtze, pushed from a riverboat. I looked at the lemon trees with newfound appreciation. Horace continued. He sent these across the Pacific, and the Spanish sent tomatoes to Italy in the 16th century, and the Portuguese, chilies, to India. And maybe a comet brought it all to Earth in the first place. Who knows? Oh, I quite agree with Dr. Jaina Mitra. He plucked a lemon from a tree. Nothing is natural. So, speaking of unnatural things, I would like to offer a very brief audio interlude. Um, so there's an audiobook of Sourdough, um, because there's an audiobook of most novels these days. And uh, some of you might know this if you are audiobook listeners. Um, 
folks are taking them very seriously now. It's a big market. There's a lot of people who experience book these way, books these ways. And so they put a lot of time and effort and, and sort of thought into how they're going to be produced. And they um, often add little extras. So the audiobook for Sourdough um, has just a couple extra strands of story, nothing that changes the plot or certainly changes the ending in any sort of consequential way, but just a little, a few extra little grace notes for the audiobook listeners. And there's something else too. In the story, um, there's a group of people, sort of a, a community or a culture, and they're the custodians of the sourdough starter of the book's title. They're the ones who kind of bring it to San Francisco and really set this whole thing in motion. In the book, uh, I describe the way that they kind of care for this starter. How many people have actually ever had a sourdough starter of their own? Oh, just a handful here. So, so the rest of you might not know this, but you use it to bake sourdough bread, and it's a living little, little colony of microorganisms, and it's really less ingredient and more roommate. Like, once you've got your sourdough bubbling, you got it. It's like high maintenance. You, you got to feed it. You got to care for it. And in, in my fictional imagining, these folks, with their very special sourdough starter, they also sing to it. They have music that it requires, that it demands, actually. So, of course, the beauty of prose is you can write something like the following. Um, she listened to the music. It was a language she had never heard before. In fact, it was like no language at all. It danced on the edge of her understanding, slow and sad. Da, 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 da. And the reader's imagination does the rest. You're like, oh yes, it does sound like that's amazing. It's so slow and so sad. Oh. <laughs> but for the audiobook, um, we decided we wanted to actually have some samples of that sound. Just the tiniest ghostly little fragments. Um, and we did not have a budget to hire like uh, like the people who make the fake languages for Game of Thrones to come and like make fake music for us. We had to come up with something else. And I did come up with something else. So first to kind of ground you in this project, this challenge that I, I faced myself, I'm going to play you a tiny sample of um, the music that was in my head when I was writing those words on the page. It's, it is something real. It's a kind of Croatian choral music. Um, long-standing tradition. It's called Klapa, K-L-A-P-A. It's really, really lovely stuff. Um, there's tons of it you can listen to online. I've listened to it for many years, and this is what it sounds like. It's nice. Um, it was tempting to just drop that into the audiobook, but of course, besides all whatever sort of legal sort of, you know, contortions would have been involved there, creatively it seemed dishonest. Because of course I'm describing this thing that is a language that no one recognizes. And something, in fact, it's something that kind of dances on the edge of everyone's understanding. And so to just have it then be Croatian, there'd be some Croatian speaker who's like, no, I can hear that. It's a really dopey song about somebody's dog. Like, <laughs> this is terrible. So I live up in the San Francisco Bay Area. And one of the things, you know, Silicon Valley and sort of technology is kind of threaded through everything. And I happen to be interested in that stuff too, as I think some of you probably know. And so one of the things that's most interesting right now is artificial intelligence and machine learning. And so, of course, we've read all the stories. We're kind of following the development of this technology that might change our lives in all of these, like, very profound, practical ways. Self-driving cars, you know, speech recognition. That stuff is all fantastic. That is not my interest in artificial intelligence. I'm interested in the creative applications, in the weird applications. And it turns out there's a particular kind of software a certain kind of machine learning software. It's called a neural network. And um, it's 
been in use for a long time. And it's modeled really, really roughly, like in a very kind of abstract way on the way that neuroscientists think neurons are connected, the way they work in our brains. And a neural network can do a lot of things for you. Um, it can probably make you money. I, I don't know how to do that yet. Um, but one of the things it can do is it can find patterns. And so you could train one of these neural networks on text, or you could give it images, or you could give it sound, and you could sort of set a challenge. You could say, I want something like this old neural network running on my computer, but I don't want it to be exactly the same. You're not allowed to just copy and repeat what you hear. You can't just parrot it back. You've got to learn something. You've got to learn something about the underlying structures, the more abstract patterns, and then use those to sing me a new song. So the nice thing about these neural networks, I think, the sort of poetic thing is that Unlike so many other things with computers these days, they're very slow, or they're not slow, they just take a long time because you're asking them to listen to like potentially hours and hours and hours of this music and then do these computations and extract these patterns. So you kind of set it up running and your computer churns for days sometimes. And then, almost like a stew, a slow simmering stew. And then you dip in your spoon and you might hear something like this. So it's very strange. But to my ear, at least, it's what I was so excited when it came out. When it came out, when it popped out of that neural network, I went, that is it's what I imagined. You know, it has the essence. There's this recognizable essence of that music I loved, and certainly the sense of human language, and something's happening there. But of course, you can't recognize it, because it is no human language. And what I think is special is that what we just heard is a sound that would be equally foreign to everyone on Earth. There's no speaker of any language that would recognize the words of that song. You have to use your imagination. Okay, so now I would like to tell you about where this book ended up. And so to do that, I need to tell you about the salty fishes. The truth is that the beginning of this book in particular is a little bit autobiographical. Has anyone read the book yet? Have you picked it up? There's a few hands. That's awesome. So, all right. You guys know that when the book opens, the protagonist, um, she's this young software engineer. She's from Michigan. She's just moved to the Bay Area. She has a really exciting but very demanding job. And because she's from Michigan, because she's a young person, she doesn't know how to feed herself. Just the <laughs> daily task of like keeping herself alive is too much of a burden. It's not that she doesn't like to eat. This is not like, uh, food is like not in my wheelhouse. Of course, she likes a good meal, she likes a slice of pizza, but it's that daily thing, that sort of 2 p.m. rumble where you go, I've waited too long, and now I have to eat something. What am I going to eat? And this was really me for a long time, working in different jobs in San Francisco in kind of my mid to sort of sadly late 20s, maybe early 30s. Um, I used to say, but I think this kind of this tells you everything you need to know about where I was. Um, at the time I actually started thinking about this book and kind of putting together the first pieces that would become sourdough, there's that kind of 
parlor game or icebreaker where you could ask, go, you know, go around a circle and say, like, well, what would your superpower be? You know, if you remember the X-Men, like, what would be your thing? And uh, common, reasonable answers to this question include things like, I wish I could fly. Or, oh, I would have super strength. Or, oh, I wish I could turn invisible. Or, there's so many. Most of them are, like, good answers. I wish I could, like, uh, shoot lightning bolts out of my eyeballs and destroy my enemies. I wish I could absorb the contents of a book just by touching its cover. So many things you can say that are, like, good answers. My go-to answer, reliably, any of my friends would, would tell you this. They would confirm that year after year after year, it, whenever this question came up, I would say, instantly, without thought, oh, I wish I could photosynthesize. <laughs> Which says a lot about the, the, the would-be photosynthesizer, right? It does. It means that, like, you would just rather put this whole problem behind you. Rather than learn to cook or learn to understand what is in the pantry and, like, what you can do with it, you want to just short-circuit this whole problem. So, um, <laughs> I've come a long way, and I'm going to tell you a little bit more about that in a second, but I, I think that feeling is actually not uncommon, particularly among young people, maybe particularly among young people in technology, maybe particularly among young Americans. You know, I just think that we don't have the same kind of backstop cuisine in this country that, that other people have in other places where it's kind of like, uh, if you're not going to eat anything else, eat this. We don't, we don't have that. Or if we do, the this is like, you know, a bag of McDonald's or something. It, it, it always involves a freezer or a car. That's like our national cuisine. Um, so, uh, so I wanted to put that in the book because I think, um, you know, it's this kind of question of representation and seeing yourself on the page and seeing an idea that's familiar to you on the page. And, um, you know, it's not something I had seen a lot in fiction and I wanted to, I wanted to give those people who had suffered in that way a little shout out. So this is how things start. Um, and it kind of gives you a sense of where folks are coming from in this world. In this tiny little scene, Lois, the protagonist, has gotten her hands on the sourdough starter, and she's just learned to bake with it. She bakes her first few loaves of sourdough bread. To her, this is miraculous, and she's desperate to share the bounty with her friends. The only friends she has are people she works with. They work at a robot factory, and um, they all sit together at this sad little table in the cafeteria where they, they've all subscribed to a nutritive gel meal replacement system. And this is what they just, they all kind of like furtively slurp it every day at lunch rather than eat the good food provided to them in the cafeteria because it's easier. So one day, Lois shows up with sourdough bread. At the slurry table, when I unveiled my gift, Peter scooched his chair back apprehensively. I don't eat bread, he reminded us. He said it like a ward against evil. The other slurry slurpers had no such compunctions. The slices I had sawed were thick and fluffy, and we slathered them with plum jam that we swiped from the fancy toast station. Garrett relished the sourdough most of all. The sounds he made were borderline NSFW. You made this, he said, mouth agape. Like, from a kit? Does it come frozen? Garrett lived in one of the new micro-cube apartment buildings on Sansom Street, and his living space didn't have any kind of kitchen. Instead, it offered a wall-mounted touchscreen. 
connected to various delivery services that were all expedited to sub-five-minute timescales through a contract with the building's owner. Garrett operated at a level of abstraction from food that made me look like Ina Garten. So I explained the process by which living sourdough starter gave the bread its texture and flavor. Garrett's eyes were wide with disbelief. It was alive, he said softly, wonderingly. He, like me, had never before considered where bread came from or why it looked the way it did. And this was us, our time and place. We could wrestle sophisticated robots into submission, but were confounded by the most basic processes of life. So, just for record, for the those of you who are going to read the book and maybe start to get worried about me, I just want to report um, that people can change, things do get better, um, and I actually had a little um, realization as I just truly, as I was getting ready to come on this book tour and start talking to people about sourdough, I was just thinking about my own eating past and the things that had gone into this book, and I realized I had actually recently hit a milestone, an important one. Even well into my, you know, at this point, years-long re-education as an eater, because I started as a picky eater as a kid from Michigan, um, I had these things that I still didn't like, right? And there were these landmines. I'd be looking through a menu, some fancy San Francisco restaurant's menu, and like some salad would look amazing, and I'd be like, oh, cool, 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 ah, eats. <laughs> or like cauliflower, ah, I just, I'd rather not. One by one, I kind of got down with the beets, got down with the cauliflower. There was one holdout, though, but I'm happy to report that like in the last six to eight months, I am fully on board with the salty fishes. Anchovies, sardines, I can tell you now, with total honesty, conviction, and indeed enthusiasm, that nothing sounds better than like a little hard cracker or like some like real dark brown toast with like a little sardine or something not just put on top of it, you kind of put it on, you know, there's like some olive oil maybe from the tin that the sardine came out of, and then you can take your fork and you kind of like smush it down a little bit so it's little salty fishy body almost smushes out like butter. Mm. Things can change, people can change too. Okay, I would like to offer as another interlude one more song of the sourdough. I'm happy to take any questions if you have them. It could be about sourdough, Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore, tiny salty fishes, or anything in between. Anybody? Yeah. Whose decision was it to make the book glow? Oh, whose decision was it to make the book glow in the dark? I desperately wish I could take credit for it, that I had had the insight that like the world needed a glow in the dark book. I, I didn't know it was possible, to tell you the truth, or if it was, that it was I assumed it was like way too fancy. Um, you can just buy glow in the dark ink in buckets, it turns out. 
And so Rodrigo Corral, who designed both the jackets for Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore and Sourdough, and who I truly think is like one of the best book jacket designers of all time, um, it was his idea to make the cover for Mr. Penumbra's Glow, you know, because it's about secrets on the shelves. And uh, once established, uh, I guess I could say that once established, I was the one who was like, yes, I love it. And all the books will glow from here on out. Yeah, yeah, it's my thing. It's my thing. You always know it's a Robin Sloan book because it glows on your shelf. What else? Any other questions? Yeah. It was not my, it wasn't my idea. I wish I could say it was. I know. It's very, it's very, I'm disappointed in myself. Anything else? Any other questions? Yeah. The question is, do you remember right that I have a new farm? And the answer is yes. This, I'm, I'm glad you asked, because it does. It shows how far a person can come. I was, truly, I was Lois, and I was, I was sitting at the slurry table as recently as maybe seven years ago or so, um, just stressed out by the whole prospect of feeding myself. I'd open a pantry that I'm sure most of these people in this room would regard as incredibly well-stocked and be like, there's nothing to eat here <laughs> and order a pizza. So things have changed. I've learned a lot. I like to cook. I wrote this book. Um, I baked a lot of sourdough bread. And there's a little olive grove in Sonol, California, which is about 40 minutes south of where I live. My partner, Catherine Tomogen, and I, we lease it for a very reasonable rate. I don't think there's a lot of demand for three-acre olive groves, because um, we don't pay very much money. But we put in a lot of work. We work there like a couple days a week, and we're actually going to have our first harvest in November, and then we'll mill it and we'll have olive oil. It's called Fat Gold, is the name of the grove. And um, part of the people who, are, who know technology, know the web, will appreciate this. The whole project, besides all the stuff about like trees and dirt and nature, it was a, it's been a super fun project because it necessitated the purchase of the single greatest internet domain name I have ever bought, which is fat.gold. So you can go there and you can scope out the olive oil. Okay, if there's any, I have a couple more things I want to tell you, but if there's any other questions lurking, yeah. Speaking of fruit, I was so disappointed there wasn't a recipe for spicy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, yeah, so, yeah, that's, a, that's, uh, that's not even a, I was going to say that's a comment, not a question. It's not even that. It's like a, it's a, you're registering a complaint, officially registering a complaint. Yeah, yeah, so, so, uh, but I will say, so the complaint is there's no recipe included for the spicy soup. Um, I had not developed it in time for like that, putting the book together. It has been developed in the time since. We, in our kitchen, we did some recipe testing. It was a first for me. And I made some really not very good soups. Um, but then some that were, they kind of got closer and closer to what I had always imagined it would be like. And we ended up with a recipe that's pretty good. And um, I, I should, I should post it online on my website and share it with the world. I pledge to you that I will do that. <laughs> yeah, back there. Has Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore been optioned for the screen? Um, it has been optioned a few times. And so I'm, for me, yeah, this is a very LA question. Um, for me, it was a, it has been just a, actually really fun and educational process of sort of realizing how, and, and every time it was a really fun series of conversations and like very smart people involved. And then eventually like it just, no one ever actually is like, Dear Robin, just so you know, 
this will never be made. <laughs> Instead, they just stop saying that it will definitely be made. <laughs> and you're like, okay, that's, that's probably over now, right? And uh, I just, I realized that a lot of things get options and most things don't get made and that's totally okay. And who knows, maybe, maybe still there is a, a great Mr. Penumbra adaptation in the future or, or sourdough for that matter. We'll see. One more question if someone has one. Yeah, right there. That's a great question. Yeah, so the question is, given all that reading I did, were there any authors that I ended up finding just really kind of benchmarks or inspirational? The answer is yes. Um, two for kind of different reasons. And also the first one's going to be so such a boring response. M.F.K. Fisher, the great food writer, besides just having a lot of interesting stories to report about, again, just, it's like about eating. She's a writer not on really cooking and not on certainly not on like restaurant culture, which is so much of the sort of food media today. It's truly about eating. Um, and so I learned things from her books, but also the voice. I, I mean, food writing aside, I think MFK Fisher has one of the all-time great writing voices. And to be totally candid, early in the process of working on this, I bummed myself out trying to ape her voice and of course failing and being like why am I even bothering and then of course I realized I had to just use my own voice and let MFK Fisher be MFK Fisher and let Robin Sloan be Robin Sloan um, and there's another um, probably more interesting response which is it's a book I can't actually remember the, the author's name I should I should have it sort of at top of mind for questions like that. But the name of the book is Near a Thousand Tables. And of all the things I read, it came closest to being like the big book of eating that I wanted. It's just, it's expansive. Um, it cover, it kind of cuts through time and space. And it's just full of these great stories. So everyone should read Near a Thousand Tables after reading Sourdough. <laughs> Okay, so I just want to tell you, if anyone has any lingering questions after that, you can always ask me while we're doing the signing. I want to tell you about two things really fast, and then we'll wrap it up. The first thing is just bookkeeping, but it's important. Not so much bookkeeping, it's just a very practical explanation. Why, when we do the signing, uh, I'm going to do a little something extra special, and so I'm going to tell you all about it now, rather than have to explain it individually. Um, what is a signature in a book? I think it means something. I think it has kind of like a, it communicates sort of a, a statement or like a certification. And I think it means something like, you know, I hand a book over to an author to be signed. And I think the signature says, I, Robin, was in the same room as J.K. Rowling or, you know, whoever. And we like looked at each other and maybe she smiled at me and we were breathing the same air and like that was cool. And that experience is now kind of encapsulated in this squiggle. That's what I think it means at its best. Now, of course, you can get signed books a lot of other ways. You can just buy pre-signed books on the shelves. I mean, we're going to have pre-signed books here at Skylight. You can buy them online. And that's really cool. Like, I, I think those should be available, too. Therefore, I think the in-person experience should have a little something extra to really, like, inscribe that moment, that real lived moment. And so, because nothing can be simple. I commissioned the creation of a rotary stamp, a custom rotary stamp. This was made for me by Rubber Stamps Unlimited of Plymouth, Michigan. And it has exactly enough digits in its readout here, which can all be dialed in, to express GPS coordinates, accurate to within 10 meters. So I've dialed in the coordinates for Skylight Books, and I will be stamping all of your books for you guys who came out here today. A little something special, you can only get it in person from me. And, you know, 
forevermore, if you're like, oh, where did I, where did I get this book again? Or like, where did I meet this author? You can just type in those GPS coordinates, drop a pin, you'll be like Skylight Books, come back, buy some more books. It's great. So this is the GPS stamp. So there's one more thing. I just want to play you one more, and by far the strangest song of the sourdough. Because I think this one's kind of cosmic to me. I don't know if you'll have the same reaction, but, but I really love it. The way these neural networks work, the ones that you're, you, you can use to kind of create these, these creative interpretations of sound and text and images, is they learn probabilities. It's really as simple as that. It's not artificial intelligence. It's like fun to say AI because it sounds very like Terminator 2. It's not intelligent at all. It's very mechanical. And so for instance, if it was text, I mean to keep it simple, and I, and I had trained one of these models to recognize these patterns in text, it would have learned that given the letter T followed by the letter H, it's very, very likely the next letter will be E or A or maybe O. Definitely not, like very, very low, vanishingly low, vanishingly low probability of J or Q or X. And so you imagine that idea and you kind of branch that out for all the things that you could write, all the ways you could put letters together. And it just becomes this kind of maze of these probabilities that produce language that is like real human language. The same thing works for sound. It's like almost exactly the same process. It's a little fuzzier. It's not as discrete, you know, as kind of those letters. But it ends up working the same way. And one of the things that um, pops out when you, when you train a neural network on all this sound, like all this Croatian choral singing, is that there's one particular probability that kind of reigns supreme. And it surprised me. I don't know if it surprised you. Here's what it is. Silence followed by more silence. The most probable thing to follow that is yet more silence. Because it turns out in all recorded audio, there's just like a lot of silence, and silence all kind of sounds the same. It could be the beginning of a track, the end of a track, the pause between movements. And so the computer somewhat perversely learns. It's like, silence, silence, oh, I got this, more silence. So sometimes you'd have trained this neural network, and you'd be like, yes, it is time to hear an amazing, weird sound. Sing it for me, computer, and you just hear, and on and on and on and on forever till the end of the file, which is disappointing. Other times, of course, you heard these great weird sounds that I played for you. But then a few times, you got something kind of in the middle, where it starts with the silence, and it's like, silence, okay. What's the highest probability? Silence. What's the highest probability? Silence. And it goes on and on and on. But remember, that's just the highest probability. And there's still all these other things that could happen. And they are each one, every note or fragment or little chirp, has a probability of what? Like one ten thousandth of one percent. But very unlikely things can still happen. And so the computer is churning through all these probabilities, and it's quiet, it's quiet, it's quiet, but then something happens, and who knows what it is. You know, all these computers have these random number generating sort of machines, these modules. Something tips over, some spark in the universe. And then it's like a row of dominoes that have been set up, of course, because now suddenly it's not silent anymore. It's sound, and it kind of explodes from there. So I want to play you an example of one of these. It's always a surprise. You tell the computer to sing you a song, and you wait a few minutes, and then you hit play, and you don't know what you're going to hear. This is what I heard one time. Um, it starts silent, so you're just going to hear nothing, and that is by design. But then you'll see that something changes.
I think that that is what having an idea sounds like. Thank you for your time. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy.